0: Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to 2 Samuel, chapter 6, the passage we read earlier today. Is he safe? asked the children when they heard the story of Aslan, the famous lion of Narnia. Safe? came the reply. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, in many ways, that reply summarizes the lesson of this chapter, that we're looking at today. Chapters 5 to 8 form a coherent section in the book of 2 Samuel. And what is significant about that section is the repetition of the personal name of God. Not one of his titles, like the Lord of hosts, but his personal name. I am, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, is repeated over and over again almost as many times as the name David is repeated, so the personal name of God is used to link God, the God of Israel, with David, David his dear servant. And in this chapter that we're reading today, the phrase before the Lord, that is before I am, or Yahweh, or Jehovah, is used four times, and I think pointing us to the main message of the section. Here is David the Messiah. He is the Lord's anointed. The word anointed means Messiah. He is the Lord's anointed, God's earthly king, and he is taking the initiative to restore the fallen worship of Israel. Because during the reign of Saul, the worship of God has lapsed. In spite of occasional nods in the direction of the God of Israel, Saul has not been a king who has encouraged his subjects to worship God. And the great symbol, the kind of standing symbol of the decline of the worship of God in Israel was the status of the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before we get too excited about the ark, the ark itself is not a particularly significant-looking piece of furniture. Basically, it's a box with a lid, a box three and a quarter feet by two and a quarter by two and a quarter. It's not that much bigger than the kind of box you may have seen in your grandmother's house in which she stores her little knickknacks, perhaps her linen, and perhaps a wedding dress or something significant from the past. Maybe you've gone in there and pulled things out and uh, played dress-up when you were young. Talking to the girls and not the boys here, obviously. And the ark, ark, although it's not significant in in a fundamental sense, was covered with gold outside and in. It was very thin gold because you had to lift the thing or the thing had to be lifted. And then on top of the ark, where the lid is, there were two cherubim, two angels, whose whose wings were curved inwards so that they kind of, the tips of the wings faced each other, leaving an exposed area beneath, which was the lid, or as it was better known, the mercy seat. And I'll come back to what that signified in a moment. The Ark was normally housed in the Sanctus Sanctorum, that is, in the Holy of Holies. There in the tabernacle, hidden... To human eyes, by the great curtain that hung in the tabernacle and later on, of course, in the temple. And the ark served as a kind of rallying point for Israel. Let me illustrate it to you in a prayer that Moses prayed. You can read the prayer in Numbers chapter 10. But whenever the ark set out, as they were marching through the desert, whenever the ark set out, Moses would pray, Arise, O Lord! And may your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when the ark rested, Moses prayed, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. So here's Moses' prayer, Arise, O Lord, return, O Lord, indicating that the ark symbolized the presence of God actively with his people. When the ark rose, God rose. When the ark returned, God returned. Here was the problem many, many years before, decades before this event. The ark of Israel had been taken into battle by the Israelites. Not so much driven by their faith that the Lord was going before them as their confidence that the ark acted acted as a kind of lucky charm. Not the serial that I enjoy so much. But the other kind of lucky charm, a kind of magical thing, just having the ark with you would do the trick. It was like carrying around a little monument that you just, or a little object that was a sacred thing that you could take with you into battle and God was sure to be on your side. Well, they took it into battle and they were full of confidence in their ark as their lucky charm in the battle. But they lost the battle, and they lost the ark. And you know the story, if you've been following the series so far, you know the story, and previously in the story of Samuel, there was the episode where the ark is taken by the Philistines into their home city. And it's placed in in the temple of their god, Dagon. And they put it on the shelf beside Dagon. And in the morning, Dagon's on the floor, face down before the ark of God. So they pick Dagon, their god, up and they put him back on the shelf. And the next morning they go in to see and there's Dagon on the floor, face down, headless and handless, before the ark of God. And the Philistines decide we're not keeping this here, we will send it to one of the other Philistine cities. And they send it there, and there are plagues. And they send it to the next one, and there are plagues. And round it goes, being passed from city to city, until eventually the Philistines get the message, we're not going to keep the Ark of God in Philistia any longer. So they take it across the border, and they leave it there, across the border, in the home of Abinadab. And that's where it's been. Get here to chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, and it's been there for decades. Here is this essential, holy piece of furniture that belongs in the tabernacle of God. And for all of these years, it has not been used as an object to help people approach God. It has not been used in the way in which it was supposed to be used, according to the law of Moses. It has stayed there, in retirement, out of the way. Because the worship of God has declined. It is a standing symbol of the worship of God, having gone into disrepair, and God's people far from Him. Well, in this chapter... We come to a new day in the chapter, a new chapter in the story of Israel. A new day has dawned. It's like a new beginning. It's like a new creation of Israel. As under her Messiah, King David, the ark of God is brought to Zion, which is to become the city of David, but also the city of God, the holy city. And here at this moment in redemptive history, three things are brought together that are going to have monumental influence in the days to come. Three things which are going to belong together in the unfolding story of God in the Bible that will culminate in the arrival of God's Messiah with a capital M, uppercase letters. The Lord's anointed, together with the Lord's holy ark, And the Lord's city are brought together, prescient of what is going to come one day when the Messiah will be identified with what the ark symbolized and will be slain outside Zion's walls. And as a result of being slain outside Zion's walls, will inherit the heavenly Zion, about which we were singing, the heavenly Zion which is the home of all of God's elect. Well, that's the symbol that we're looking at this morning. And the sidelining of the ark meant the sidelining of God. But now the ark's being brought back into the center. And there are three lessons that it teaches us about the presence of God, the holiness of God, and the mercy of God. First of all, there's a presence of God. And I want you to see that God is present above the ark, in the ark, and on the ark. God is present, first of all, above the ark. Because first of all, the ark represented the throne of God, which was above it. And the ark is the footstool of that throne. In fact, in First Chronicles 28, The ark is called the footstool of our God. You see, the God of Israel was never represented by any piece of furniture or by any idol or by any material thing. The God of Israel was an invisible God. You couldn't take him into battle. He could never fall off the shelf and be dismembered the way Dagon was because the God of Israel is an invisible God. And he reigns upon an invisible throne. But what God did for Israel was that he gave them a visible thing, the ark, as a visible element of his reign, as a a point, if you will, in which God who is invisible touches down on our planet. This is the place where God has said to Israel, he will meet with his people. Yes, God is everywhere. God is everywhere present, but God is specially present where the ark is because the ark is his is this earthly footstool of His eternal, invisible throne that is invisible to our eyes. And so here is all eternity. Here is the universe that God occupies in His glory. And the whole universe of God's glory is focused into this little spot of territory. The top of the ark that is His footstool where He delights to meet with His people. And he represented this to Israel by giving them the Shekinah glory, the glory of God. The glory that led Israel through the desert that was a cloud of fire by day or, or a, cloud, a cloud by day and fire by night. So that wherever Israel was, wherever they parked every evening and they put their tents around the tabernacle in the middle, the tent in the middle, there the glory cloud of God would descend and it would rest upon the sanctus sanctorum, the holy of holies. It would rest upon the ark of God. God was visually over 40 years teaching Israel that the invisible God met with them at the tabernacle, in the place where His glory touched earth. It is the throne of God. It represents. Then you take over the, you open the lid, and in the ark in the ark there were some trinkets there was the rod of Moses when he was confronting pharaoh you remember he had this rod and the rod budded just a piece of pole and it budded god did a miracle through that rod it was there in the ark and there was a bowl of manna you remember for the 40 days in the wilderness the years in the wilderness god was feeding his people with manna in the morning and some of that manna was preserved and it was placed in the ark as a reminder of God's provision. But supremely in the ark, there were two tables of stone. And on those two tables of stone were written by the finger of God, the word of God. For preeminently in the ark, there is the reminder... That though God is invisible, God is not inaudible. Though you cannot see God, you can hear the God of the Bible. He is a speaking God. And there in the ark was the written constitution of Israel. There in the ark were the covenant documents of Israel, represented by the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God. And in those covenant documents was the basis of their religious and national life together. It's called the Ark of the Covenant because there were the visible elements of that relationship that God had with his people. So above the Ark, his glory, in the Ark, his word, and then on the Ark. What was on top of the Ark? Well, you say there was a lid. I told you what the lid's name is, the mercy seat, the atonement cover. Because once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest, after he had slain the animals, would bring the blood of the animals in behind the curtain, invisible to human eyes, he would go towards this ark of God and on the top of the ark, on the atonement cover, on the mercy seat, he would sprinkle the blood of the animal that has been killed as a symbol that One had been sacrificed on behalf of the nation, of the people. That the blood had been shed. That the real judgment that Israel deserved had been carried out on an innocent other. And the blood is sprinkled on the ark to represent the real sacrifice that has been made for the people's sins. So David's interest, you see, in the return of the ark was a big deal. Here was the symbol of the ruling, reign, the ruling, speaking, pardoning God of Israel. Here's David the worshiper summoning all of the people of God to bring the ark back and to place it at the center of the camp of Israel in this new capital that he was establishing there. But our interest, of course, in the ark is the relationship that David is establishing here between the Lord's anointed and the ark, because that ark and what it represents, represents the work of the Messiah when he comes, ultimately. So, the ark proclaims the throne of God. And Jesus makes this clear when he he reflects, you remember, on that vision that that Isaiah had Of the glory of God, he went into the temple in the year King Uzziah died. And there, coming from the Holy of Holies, where the Sanctus Sanctorum is, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, filling the temple with his glory and splendor. And Jesus said, referring to that incident, when Isaiah saw the glory of God in the temple, above the Holy of, in the Holy of Holies, above the Ark of God, Jesus said this, Isaiah said these things, because he saw my glory and spoke of me. We think of the glory of God. Jesus says, he spoke of me. You think of the throne of God. The God who reigns over all. And Jesus said, Is Isaiah was speaking of me. And then what about the word of God? The word of God in, in the ark. Jesus comes as the word of Of God made flesh. The Father says from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. Jesus says, Those that hear my words, They have life. I am the resurrection and the life. Thirdly, the ark proclaims the mercy of God. For there on the ark, you see, The blood was sprinkled that cleaned Israel for another year. And in the New Testament, Jesus is our priest and he is the sacrifice. He is the offerer and the offering. He is the one who comes and consecrates himself to God in that great high priestly prayer in John 17. For their sakes I consecrate myself. And then on the altar of Calvary, he offers himself as one sacrifice for sins for all time. He offers himself once to God as the Savior and Redeemer of his people. And it's on the basis of that that we are justified. We're made right with God by grace as a gift through the redemption price paid by our Lord Jesus Christ whom God puts forward as a propitiation, as a sacrifice that turns aside, turns away God's anger and that is received by faith alone. So the ark, you see, is the symbol of the presence of God. It's a symbol of Jesus. It's a symbol of Christ, centered in the, among the praises of God's people. So when we ask the question this morning, how on earth do we have God-centered worship? The answer of 2 Samuel chapter 6, says you have the ark in the center. And the New Testament answer is what? It is you have Christ at the center. He is the one. He is the one who fulfills what the ark represents. He is the presence of God incarnate. Here is the Word made flesh. Here is God with us. In the tabernacle of His own humanity, He is present. Jesus Where'er thy people meet, there they behold your mercy seat. It's a picture of the presence of God. Secondly, in this chapter, we have the picture of the holiness of God. They were bringing back the ark, and do you notice the repetition of the fact that they carried the ark of God, verse 3, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. This was a great event. It was a, a, an amazing event. People were all, they were all caffeined up as a result of this. The like Jonathan Olson, the whole, the whole kin kaputal of Israel, were all hyped up at the very idea of bringing the ark back. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Just sounds like a tenth worship service right there. So there they all are. Remember, it's not a worship service Per se, it's worship and national event combined because the church at this stage is a nation state. But they were full of joy. They were dancing for joy. This was participatory dancing for joy. Everybody was doing it. They were all in on the act. And then suddenly, in the midst of all this joy, suddenly, the dancing stops. The music stops playing. Suddenly, there's silence. Because we read in verses 6 and 7. Then they came to the threshing floor of Nakon. Asa put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. And God struck him down. It is a sobering word. Everything stopped. Maybe you're here this morning and this is shocking to you. Maybe it's offensive to you. Perhaps, if you're not a Christian person, you you think to yourself, I thought you Christians talked about God being love, and being kind, and and being slow to anger, and being long-suffering. And you think to yourself, what's going on here? After all, on the surface of the story, the man is only trying to stop this precious object, fall to the ground and into the mud. You would think God would commend him rather than nuke him. But that's what happens. And I want to pause for a moment and say this to you. Nobody would have ever invented this story. If you were inventing a story about God that you wanted to be marketable in the 21st century, you don't don't invent a story about a God who goes about nuking people. When they're doing what they're doing in good faith, it just doesn't compute, you see. The only reason this is in the Bible is that it happened this way, and we have to learn something from it. Because what's going on here? What is going on here is that Uzzah has forgotten the holiness of God. What do I mean? The Israelites have been given specific people to work in the tabernacle of God. Priests who were descended from Levi, who are appropriately called Levites. Because they were descended from Levi. And all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. There were some who had specialist jobs. The sons of Kohath had a special job to take care of the sacred articles in the tabernacle. And there was a simple rule. The simple rule was this. No hands, no eyes, no vehicles. You can read about it for yourself. No eyes, you couldn't look on it. You weren't supposed to see the sacred furniture that was going to be in the Sanctus Sanctorum, the Holy of Holies. You weren't allowed to see it. You weren't allowed to touch it physically with your hand. You were not allowed, permitted to do that. And you were not allowed to put it on a vehicle and for a vehicle to carry it. In fact, there were gold loops on either side, four of them. And there were two long golden poles, and you could put the poles through the loops, and the sons of Koath could lift it up and put it on their shoulder and carry it, but you weren't allowed to put it on a Lincoln or a Mercedes or anything else to get it from A to B. This just wasn't permitted in the law of God. And there was a warning attached. You must not touch the holy things or you will die. You mustn't look in the holy things lest they die. God gives a warning. And all Israel knew about the warning. Now why does God give warnings? He gives warnings for the same reason we do. We put the word poison on a can so that nobody will drink it. We put a sign, danger of death, where there are electrical works or something. Why do we do that? Because we know if somebody climbs over there and they get into that stuff and they touch it, all those vaults will go through them and they will die. You're supposed to respond. Die. Because they're in danger of death. And when God gives warnings, God gives warnings because there is danger of death. Now, as far as we know, and there's a dispute about this among the scholars, and it really doesn't matter either way, but as far as we know, Uzzah was a Kohathite and therefore knew exactly what his duties were. If he wasn't a Kohathite, he'd no bother that business being involved in the, in the movement of it at all. But the likelihood is that he was a Kohathite and that he knew exactly what his duties were. And he knew that touching the ark or looking at the ark Or putting it on a cart was a capital offense. And yet, what does he do? He touches it anyway. He sees it moving towards the ground and he reaches out to touch the Ark of God. And it was a sin of arrogance and of presumption. See, what did he not know? What did this man not know? He didn't understand that the dirt and the mud of the ground have never, never offended God. The dirt and the mud of the ground is not unclean in the eyes of God. But fallen humanity is unclean in the eyes of God. All human beings, all of us, are unworthy to touch holy things because we are unholy. It is not the earth God condemns, it is people God condemns for our rebellion against Him and our offenses towards Him. You see, when it comes to the worship of God, we're not free to innovate. When it comes to the worship of God, we're not free to think we know the way to do it. And go against what God has prescribed in the Bible. It's not a subject that you and I, it's above our pay grade to try and change the way in which God is to be worshipped. There's a Hebrew word that's used here, a root, that's used three times in these verses. and It's used in chapter 5 verse 20 when Yahweh breaks out against David's enemies and is called there the Lord of outbreakings. And now in chapter 6 verse 8 David became angry because the Lord had broken out with an outbreak against Uzzah so that the place is called outbreak of Uzzah to this day. God had broken out. In chapter 5 verse 20 God breaks out against David's enemies, the Philistines. Here in chapter 6 verse 8 Yahweh breaks out against Israel David's Friends, because God in His holiness is even-handed. God in His holiness does not prefer one to another. He doesn't prefer His own people to those who are pagan or outside of His kingdom. God's holiness is absolutely just, even-handed. Whatever you say about the God of the Bible, let me say this. He is absolutely not tame. He is absolutely not safe. He's not unpredictable. He is... Blisteringly, blindly, blindingly, holy, he is a holy God. And yet that seems to escape, doesn't it? That seems to escape many Christian people today. We want a God who is manageable, God who's kind of fluffy, can sit on your lap and you can stroke him, a God who jumps. To you tune, a God who does what we want him to do, a God who fits into our agenda and to our diary, our calendar. We want a God who meets our needs. We don't want the God who's there. The God who is rather scary. The God who is dangerous. But I want you to notice it doesn't end there. The chapter ends with the mercy of God. The mercy of God. John Calvin says this. When God is terrible, it is not to make us frightened. David is frightened, you can see that. If you read the story, you'll find David is frightened by what he by what he says. We're told in verse nine David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so he leaves it. He leaves it where it is, in the home of Obed Edom, a Giddite, that is a Philistine person who lived in Israel. He leaves the ark there, and for three months nothing happens. David is He's just kind of, he's, he's made immobile. He's immobilized by fear of what is going on here. And David is in the wrong to be immobilized by fear. He's in the wrong to be immobilized by fear. And God demonstrates this. You see how God demonstrates it. Verse 12. It was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. For those three months... When David is immobilized by fear at what has happened, this bursting out of the holiness of God, what is going on? God blesses the household of a Gittite, a Philistine person, and his family. What is God saying? God is saying, my holiness is not the last word. I delight to have mercy. David, instead of being afraid, apply to me for mercy. Mercy. Instead of running away from me, come to me for mercy. Israel had been taught this from the earliest days. The God who judges delights to show mercy. Come to me for mercy. David has learned his lesson. And he gathers Israel together and they went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. They carried him up, so Chronicles tells us, obeying the rules that were laid down, and this time, this time, within the rules God has laid down, there is uninhibited and confident joy, because David knows what the problem was, solved the problem of disobedience, and now there is uninhibited, uninhibited joy in the presence of God. As he brings the ark home. Psalm 132 captures this event. Let's go to his dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool, the ark. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. The ark returns home. And in the midst of all this, you can see the elements of worship emerging. The elements of worship that day were obedience as they bring the ark back as it should be. And mixed with obedience is the posture of the king, the king who humbles himself, the king who takes off his kingly robes and is dressed in an ephod, the ephod of a priest, and who joins with the people in bringing his sacrifice, uh, his his, his sacrifice of praises to God as they make their way. Obedience and reverence. Do you notice that along the way David pauses to offer sacrifices? Here is the priest king. Offering sacrifices of thanksgiving to God. In other words, here is David acting by faith here. No sin offering has been made, but he's offering thank offerings to God. He understands that the mercy of God is dependent on the work that is done on the mercy seat. And on the basis of the mercy seat, where sin is dealt with finally by by God, he can offer up thank offerings to God. Just as today we come to God, we come on the basis of what's been done on the mercy seat of Calvary, where the blood of Jesus was poured out on our behalf. And on the basis of what Jesus did, we come to God today with our praises as our sacrifice of thanksgiving. And not only was there obedience and reverence, there was exuberance, exuberant, joyful. Joyful celebration of what God has done. There you have Yahweh's self-giving. Here you have endless offerings being made as they stop. Every bit along the way they keep stopping and offering sacrifices of praise. And then they will have communal meals. David sponsors all these communal meals so that all Israel is eating well and heartily in their celebration of what God has done. There's royal extravagance in it all. Exuberant, exuberant worship of God. Well, not everybody is exuberant. David's wife, described as the daughter of Saul, twice, in verse 16 and verse 20, is not happy. She is not a happy bunny. She isn't part of the celebration. Do you notice that? She's not part of the celebration. Look at verse 16. She looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She doesn't identify with what's going on in the worship. Like her father before her, apparently she misses the wood for the tree. She doesn't seem to get the main thing. She doesn't seem to dwell on the right thing. She's diverted by secondary issues. She's looking at the behavior of the crowds and of her husband among the crowds, and she despises that, she doesn't feel any need to be part of what's going on. She is semi-detached. She is an observer at worship, not a participant in worship. And so David, at the end of the celebrations, goes home to bless his household, to gather the family and the servants together, to praise God and have a, have a praise time in his own home with his own family. And he walks in the door and there she is. Maybe some of you know what this feels like. He knows there's something wrong. And she doesn't wait to tell him what's wrong. How the king of Israel honored himself today, she says, with biting sarcasm. You looked glorious today, darling. Every bit like a king, not dancing around, cavorting in front of all those people like you were one of the boys today, like you were one of the common herd, one of the masses. Where is your dignity? She's asking him. I understand exactly what's going on here. There was a, we came back from Canada, and uh, in Canada we used to have long, hot summers. We came back to Scotland to rain every day. And, but then the second summer we were in Scotland, we had a heat wave. It was blisteringly hot. It was, it was one of the hottest summers on record. I remember it well. It was a Wednesday. It came on a Wednesday, it left on Wednesday, but it was a warm day that day, and I, we looked back to that summer with, uh, with great affection. And so I decided that I would go down into the town in my shorts. They weren't short shorts, nothing embarrassing, nothing that you would be. But I went and I met one of the, one of the older members of the congregation, I remember it very well. He's in glory now, so I can tell you. His name was Hunter, Hunter Henderson. And he and I became firm friends, actually, later, but this was the first encounter with Hunter, and he met me in the street, and, I, and uh, I remember him looking me up and down. You could tell from his face what was coming. He looked at me up and down, and he said in his rather gruff, Scottish voice, he said, You might as well be naked. And of course, what he was meaning is, where is your gray suit and your clerical collar and all the things that make you look like the minister who leads the services on Sunday? If you don't look like a minister, I won't treat you like a minister. That is precisely what the daughter of Saul said to David that day: "You don't look." like a king. My dad knew how to look like a king. He looked every inch the king. He would never be found behaving as you're behaving like you're one of the the mob. David, in his witness to her, reminds her that actually in the presence of the king, of Israel, he is only one of the crowd. And he reminds her that he is what he is by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone. God has chosen him to be the Lord's anointed. And he has his own bit of irony to throw in, chose me rather than your father's household for this. But he goes on to witness well to her. He says this, I have been celebrating before the Lord who chose me. In other words, I'm conscious not of your eye upon me, but of his eye upon me. Perhaps that's the best place for us to wind up today. When we come to worship, when we come to worship God we come underneath His eye who sees the heart. He sees what's in us. And when we come to God we come through Jesus Christ who combines within Himself the messianic office of the King the role and symbolism of the ark In order that he might bring us to Zion, the city of David, which is the city of God. And in the meantime, he calls us to worship him. Now that the new beginning has started, now that the ends of the ages have come upon us, he encourages us to worship God in obedience, with reverence, and exuberance to the praise of God of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, we might offer joyful worship to you today, mindful not of the gaze of others, but of the eye of God. In Jesus' name, amen.